0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of HDP, The Human Derek Podcast. Today's guests are amazing, freaking awesome, uh, Mr. Peter Cummings and Tara O'Neill. In fact, Tara's been on here before, uh, and we just had a super cool experience after the recording stopped, But I'll talk about that in a moment. First, today's episode is brought to you by coffee, delicious coffee all over. Some like it black, some like it white, uh, whatever you put in your coffee. Oh, I don't, got me thinking. I'm just thinking about coffee. I've already had enough coffee today. If you couldn't tell by how fast I'm talking, I am super caffeinated and love it. Uh, but I use coconut milk just in case you were curious, by the way, if you're still using whole milk and 2%, you're an animal. You're a crazy animal. Who does that in this day and age? But however you however you drink your coffee, I'm sure it's delicious. And check out Guadalupe Roastery. That's Guadalupe, 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 Guadalupe Uh, They've been sponsoring the podcast since day one. Love them to death. I've been drinking their coffee for several years. In fact, that was why I was excited to talk about them on the podcast because I'm a huge fan, not just of the flavor of the beverage, the chocolatey, peanut buttery notes of the Brazilian whole bean that arrives on my doorstep each month. Two large packages. Oh, so good. But that's uh, not why. Use Derek if you want to go check them out. Derek, D-E-R-E-K, 10% off your next order when you go to Roastery.com. But they're just a, a wholesome, like family-oriented company. They work directly with the farmers in the different regions they get the beans from. They do a lot to support the communities that work to put the coffee in your cup. A huge fan, Guadalupe Roastery, just a a virtuous, wholesome company, a great place to get your coffee. Type in Derek, D-E-R-E-K on checkout. Get yourself 10% off of your next order. So today's episode of the Human Derek Podcast, that's what we're doing here, right? Yep, that's where we're at. All right, has uh, Peter Cummings, Man, this guy is incredible. We we talked about a lot of different things, but we primarily talked about his work with sticks. Now he uh, <laughs> he's doing everything in his power not to be called the Stick Man or call it Stick Work, um, but it's called ARM A A R M Adult Attachment Repair Model. And, and we actually went through a short session after the episode. I can only describe it as just being very powerful. It is. I've tried a lot of really cool things in my life, and um, this particular thing, it was was super interesting. It was just fascinating. I'm obviously very analytical about things, and so uh, just the body-mind connection, and we do talk about that a bit in the episode. Really special stuff going on with uh, Peter Cummings and his work that he's doing. He does promote at the very end uh, some upcoming workshops. They should be in the show notes. And here we go.
1: See, this is the real secret of life, to be
2: completely engaged
1: with the here and now.
2: Everybody wants to fulfill the highest, truest expression of yourself. <laughs> it was all a dream. Today is about the power of you. You've now entered the Derek Podcast. Wait,
0: thanks for coming in today. My pleasure uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I hope the uh, travel wasn't too far i think you're
2: you're a local guy right so oh, i'm a i love to drive you um, know, I'm kind of a road rallyer, so you know I don't want like getting on the freeway at all oh, very it, nice
0: yeah. and uh, and you brought a you brought a friend I know he's over in the corner or she or maybe it's gender neutral i'm not <laughs> totally totally sure, but uh Yeah, the
2: the lifeless stick that uh, can bring a die out of two people together pretty quickly.
0: Well, that's uh, that's pretty neat. I've heard about your work. Tara's uh, told me about your work in terms of, uh, I know she uses the the word trauma to describe it. And I always, I'm really big on defining words. Mm -hmm. And so when I think of a word trauma, I think it's important to define what that means too, because for what one person, might be traumatic Another person could just look at it as a more standard event too.
2: Yeah. I think that's a good place to start the discussion because, uh, when I train people in my model, the model is called the adult attachment repair model. Um, and it's all about attachment. Um, so, um, If you're going to be working in the area of attachment as a healer, you've got to know that the trauma attached to attachment is different than all other kinds of trauma. It's not like other trauma. And what uh, distinguishes it more than anything is the fact that uh, attachment trauma is really best captured in the idea of developmental disappointment in other words, we all kind of face uh, parent-child breakdown in the relationship. But when it gets to the point of, of chronic disappointment, then we have a different animal, a different type of trauma. And uh, anybody trying to help somebody with attachment trauma uh, would be well-warned that uh, they have to bring more to the table than the average counselor does. You know, They have to kind of uh, understand that the person is coming in with extraordinary gaps in experience, and those gaps make it impossible for them to tell you about their life in a meaningful way. You have to be able to fill those gaps for them in the beginning of therapy, and it's the most uplifting thing that they've ever heard in their lives. When you start doing that, you know, it's like, oh my god, nobody's ever said this before, you know, and it resonates very deeply in them. Uh, so, yeah, attachment trauma is different than everyday type of situational trauma.
0: When you said you said gaps there, I think that's pretty. I was at a stand-up comedy club last night. And there's a guy named John Heffern coming through, and he was. Talking about the generation, the high schoolers, a senior's graduate from high school that he's imagining, you know, 20, 30, 40 years. And he's a comedian, so he's making a joke about it. But, uh, you know, the, asking them what their uh, mascot, you know, what was their high school mascot? And it's 30 years down the road, and they're going, oh, I think it was uh, Crown Royal or White Claw, <laughs> or, you know, and, yeah. and that's, that's a, could be considered chronic, I guess, over the course of a year. But how, how would you define a chronic? Um,
2: Disappointment? Yeah. Um, It's, it's, you know, usually captured in critical moments. You know, we don't really identify day to day what are the critical moments in that parent-child relationship. But nevertheless, the disappointment comes at critical moments where the child's level of dependency is heightened. And because of that heightened dependency, the pressure on the caregiver, the parent to be emotionally attuned is enormous. And we often fail at that more than we hit the money. You know, the, the experts say you only have to be on 30 to 40 percent of the time to make uh, a, a securely attached person. Hmm. You as a parent you only have to be on thirty to forty percent of the time. So um, we're talking about situations where that thirty to forty percent doesn't get met. Wow. And then there's nothing. And that's developmental trauma because the disappointment has seeped into the bone marrow at that point. Hmm. And it's gonna influence every every subsequent experience of that person's life.
0: Yeah, And you, you said securely too, there's a book I was reading called uh, attached and it's about, uh, they take child, uh, attachment theory and apply it to adults. And mm-hmm. I think there were four, four types, secure, anxious, avoidant. And then even, uh, what they said is a very rare, but unfortunate combo of anxious avoidant.
2: Yeah. Um, I get, you know, I've been, I suspended everything I knew when I started to develop this model and threw out all the, the predictive instruments that you use. And this would be one of those instruments that predicts how a person's going to be. Um, Is valid. I'm not saying it's not valid, but, um, The adult attachment inventory is probably one of the best pieces of research ever done in social science. And what it does is predict what two people are going to produce by way of an attachment style in their child that's not even born yet. And their prediction is over 80% that they can do that. Hmm. But, you know, that and a quarter is not going to buy a cup of coffee. You know, so what? (laughs) Really, so it's nice to know. Yeah. Um, it kind of gives us as a profession a shorthand to communicate. But when you're in the throes of a healing process, what really matters is the moment. And what really matters is how that person found or didn't find a way to adapt to whatever they were emotionally struggling with. And that's the only point of interest, <laughs> you know, hmm. this part of that person had never been acknowledged, you know, and so you're sitting there for the first time finding a way to acknowledge that person. So it really doesn't matter whether they're, you know, ambivalently attached or chaotically. It doesn't matter. <laughs> hmm. You know, it's when you've done a collective body of work over months and months and months and look at what you've created in those moments and then compare it against uh, an insecure attachment style, then, oh, okay, that makes sense, you know? Why do you why do you think it is that,
0: that some folks, because uh, you always hear the, you know, either like a rags or riches type mm-hmm. story or broken home or someone breaks through and they, you know, overcome those things and uh, sometimes you... I don't like the concept of do it on your own. You know, essentially, they do have to pull themselves up by the bootstraps. Why do you think there's a, a difference in terms of how uh, childhood, you know, trauma can affect people differently?
2: Well, I think that's one of the the miracles of life. You know, um, you know, I have two children that couldn't be more different, um, and it was really the the toss of the jeans, you know, (laughs) you you just don't know what you're going to get, you know. Um, So I think um, there are certain makeups, you know, there's certain temperaments that represent the most permanent parts of us. And you can feel that even in utero. I mean, you know, I have two kids that are very different. One, we didn't even know he was in the womb. And the other one never stopped kicking, you know, and came out with a cord wrapped around her neck three times and, um, you know, had that temperament. And, you know, the other one, no. Um, So, you know, that's the first thing. Um, Based on what that temperament is, the person's going to make choices. And one of the things that's really uh, stunned me as I've moved through these kind of decades now of experience is how some people are capable of of really good self-parenting. They can make good choices for themselves. It doesn't mean that they're not brokenhearted. It doesn't mean that they don't struggle like somebody making bad choices, but they make good choices. And, you know, I just, you know, what can you say to them? You can applaud them and say, bravo, you did a great job here. And it's literally the first time they've ever heard anything like that. So just that intervention in itself brings a level of recognition that was also missed. And all of a sudden, the the architecture in the, in the nervous system starts to reconfigure, and it gets stronger, and you get what's called integration. And that's really what the whole counseling effort is about, is to... Help the person have enough experience interpersonally, where their system starts to be defragmented and integrated. So,
3: and I think that's actually um, a good time for a question about the type of people that you see. So it doesn't necessarily have to be the type that make bad choices all the time, right? What kind? What's your clientele like?
2: Um. Can I open this? Oh please go for it. Yeah. yeah. There's
0: no yeah you can break anytime
2: we want. It's <laughs> um, it's been you know it's been really based on a on a thing of
0: I should also say there is a little bit of caffeine. There's about 25 oh. milligrams of caffeine. So I just remembered that too. Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah. My system can take it. Okay. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I've had a client ask me that a couple of years ago. And they, they said to me, uh, can you tell me what is the common uh, denominator here in all of your clients? And I thought to myself, boy, well, that's that's an impossible question. If I've ever had a question before. Mm. And almost instantaneously I was able to answer it, even though I thought it was an impossible question. And I do family trees when I sit down with somebody. You know, I draw out who the mother was, who the father was, who the siblings were, who the grandparents were, who the teachers were, who the boyfriends were. That's all gets mapped out. And so um As I'm I'm doing that, um, it occurred to me the person on every one of these family trees or genograms is what we call them, who's identified as my client on that multi-generational diagram um, is the shock absorber for two or three generations emotionally. And I think that's the common thread of the people that I see, is that these people are seekers to the core, and they're looking for a fix that they, quite, they don't quite even know how to describe. Um, but when you trace back their family histories, you'll find out that these are the people who were the change agents and took it on the noggin, so to speak, for being able to do that. And um, that's what I think has emerged over all these years. Um, And it took me a, a long weeding out process to understand people's motivations, you know, whether people were satisfied to come in and do minimal healing and satisfy some vague requirements in life that if they just did the bare minimum... Um, that was good enough. Well, you know, I wasn't interested in working with those types of people. So they kind of fell by the wayside and my practice became what it is. Um, so, but socioeconomically and diversity and all that, it's all over the place. You know, it's as diverse as you can possibly think, you know? And how long have you been
0: developing this model?
2: You know, it's embarrassing, but um, <laughs> you know, it's it's like people don't want to hear me anymore. We used to live in the East, in, in Miami, and I always loved California, and you know, we kept saying for 15 years that we lived there that we're moving to California, and finally people just said, oh, stop already. You're never going to move. Stop talking about it, you know? And um, you know, we did. We moved. In a very short span of time and this effort has felt the same way it's been a very constipated movement (laughs) because i've had to be dissatisfied with what i was doing enough to launch a different effort you know in terms of just being an observer not caring about the professional world not wanting to be in the professional world wanting to create my own sense of what works and what doesn't work and i was sort of like the crazy artist that just didn't want to be bothered you know i don't want to see your work i'm working on something of my own you know um and did that for a good 10 to 15 years and i think the overall effort here has been uh, climbing over 30 years now of a 45-year practice so and i had been and done so many things before I got to this, it, in reflection, felt like a training ground to do this, but it wasn't intentional. You know, the diversity of my own education was vast and it was in the trenches. It wasn't in the university, you know, as an uh, academic. And, um, you know, I think being the, um, uh, the underdog, so to speak made my work um, different than what would have come out of academia because I was in the trenches and using the office as a lab and actually seeing people uh, all day, every day, all this time. And when I talk to colleagues who are in academia, I say to them, I say, well, what kind of a caseload do you have? Because you're out there, you know, touting your books and, um, you know, counseling people or, or coaching people in public about how to treat people. What, where's caseload? They don't have them. You know, mm. the only work they do is in demonstrations. And I think it really weakens um, a person's offerings if you're not in the trenches doing the work. So my poor students get it, you know, when they come in because they have this work ethic and this Uh, feeling about how dedicated somebody should be if they're going to take this on. And I, you know, as a student, you probably felt that, no?
3: Yeah. But it was nice though, because you also said, Hey, just go and start, start working, start, Mm -hmm. you know, find a client, pick up anyone, grab them and just give, you know, give them a stick. (laughs) (laughs) So that was, that was nice. It was very experiential training.
2: Yeah. And I guess, you know, my, Recruitment effort has to do with people who have a natural ability more than the credentials. Um, You know, I'd much rather know that the person has an innate ability to help somebody as a healer. Uh, And then the credentials are nice, and they'll cushion your, your professional life if you have them, but they're not absolutely necessary, you know, so...
3: And that might actually be a good time to talk about who might be interested in learning this model. So, what types of people in the past have been successful in learning this model? Because I know in our cohort, we had all types of, of people. Yes, from yeah. you know professionals to healers. Yeah. Know.
2: Um, I, I think you know somebody's thinking about they might want to learn how to do this. Um, there are certain things that are important to consider. Um, the first thing is that it takes um, just to kind of get
0: real, real quick, before we go into that, too, because I can imagine someone might be listening now and going, "Well what exactly are they doing? Because we haven't really covered <laughs> yeah, that's, that, that that's, yet. That's, so would you would you take a few this. moments to to walk us through? Uh, I know we, I figure we we're gonna get there eventually, mm-hmm. but it's probably now is a great time. Would you walk us through you know exactly so we've talked about trauma healing attachment right. uh if you don't mind sharing whether it's your process or how you uh, how you would share it with someone that has uh you know no yeah idea and maybe even doing.
3: just say what your your background was because i'm not sure if we jumped into like the introduction we kind of skipped over the introduction there's part.
0: no introduction i know but just
3: <laughs> still we just, so, it's just a conversation sure but i guess what you know what you had done in the past like with traditional more traditional counseling and then how did it become automatic you know, I,
2: I think my personal life probably was more formative than anything else and you know i came from a horrible family with horrible parents And I thank them for my career, you know. Um, And it was severe enough where I can compare my experience, my life experience growing up against a lot of other people who I've treated. And I can say that my experience was significantly different than the majority of people that came in, in that my parents did not equivocate on whether they did not love me they were they were absolute about that, and there was never any uh glimmers <laughs> that maybe they'd reconsider that um, so I had to deal with that notion from a very young age, and it made it easier um, and you know where else am I going to fall other than in the mental health field after after a childhood like that you know um <laughs> so you know, the first person in my family of origin to enter into this profession and jump in with both feet. Um, And I just had to establish um, myself as a person with professional standing um, from a very deprived background. And most people think that I came from a privileged background without knowing me. And I kind of did, um, but also I kind of didn't. So, um, you know, I had to to take what was out there. I, I worked in uh, methadone treatment, um, you know, loved it. Best bunch of clients I ever worked with. Um, really enjoyed it. Um, ended up working with Brian Weiss, who was a world-renowned um, uh, Guy that connected you with uh, people on the other side, and he was a enigma in that he is a psychiatrist from Yale and had done all kinds of um, medical things, including running the children's unit at Mount Sinai, and became this past life regression guy. Hmm. Um, and I worked with him for a couple of years. I didn't know
3: that. Yeah, I, I know him. Yeah.
2: yeah, he was my supervisor for a long time, and. Um, was one of the first people to say to the staff, this guy has some unusual talents. <laughs> you know, you may want to watch him a little bit, you know? And, you know, to me, I didn't know what the hell he was talking about. I thought, yeah, you know, I'm a smart ass sometimes, and I can be evocative by nature. Um, and I guess that, that can be a good thing occasionally. Um so, you know, I got validated uh, in ways that I'd never have before. So then, you know, I went into community mental health and I went into employee assistance. And I mean, I've done it all and, you know, have had bioenergetic training, you know, where you run around in your underwear for a couple of years, you know. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh-huh. That case, and that kind of
3: And then, who was the first stick client?
2: Um, well, it was a guy who I think was having an affair. I I mean, I think I couldn't figure out why he would fall asleep in every session. Um, and it finally occurred to me, oh, I think he's having an affair and he doesn't want to tell me. So, Hmm. um, I had, um, this decorative piece sitting next to my chair and it was this great big vase, big open neck, with um styrofoam in it and all these sticks stuck in it like a porcupine
1: Mm.
2: and they were about three feet long and so i was just kind of moved for reasons i don't really understand to pull a couple of those out and wake him up and say pull on this will you and he did (laughs) and we're off to the races from that point wow and it just so happened that uh, I had a retreat up in Big Sur uh, with my brother-in-law and all his hippy-dippy friends from you know Santa Cruz and up in that area. <laughs> and when um, we were up there for the weekend on this ranch in in Big Sur in uh, uh, what's a pretty pretty place? Can't think of the name of it right now. Um, anyway, we. Um, people just kind of drifted in and out of this farmhouse. And so these two shaman women showed up for the weekend. And they were the real deal. You know, there's some other country that spoke broken English and all that kind of stuff. Anyway, we spent time in nature together. And they told me what they did. And they wanted me to show them what I did. And with that little bit of experience that I had with this guy, I pulled a stick from nature and demonstrated the method to them and we sat there probably three hours playing with the method as a group just just being fascinated with it curious about it and played with it so by the time i came back to the office i came there with a much more serious intent to explore what was in this and that's how it happened
0: and and so at this point, when you said the office, what was your modality? What, what kind of therapy were you doing?
2: Um, I was doing um, EMDR, Eye Movement Desensitization and Reprocessing, and was very devoted to learning that method and did learn it and uh, became one of the mid-level insiders to EMDR. Um, And then became disenchanted with it um, because there was a growing orthodoxy that you had to be, um, you know, loyal or um, to the protocol. And if you drifted from the protocol, you were somehow a defector of some sort, you know. And I was just too curious to tweak this model of EMDR up, down, and sideways. And had been kind of rewarded for that as an innovator, and then all of a sudden they didn't want me to do that. Um, so I was too gripped by what I was doing to let that slow me down. I figured, okay, I'll just go over here and i don't need I don't need them, <laughs> okay. I'll just do it myself." And that's what happened, you know so yeah, so that.
0: That led to your your first client, the guy falling asleep, mm-hmm. and then some some nature stick shaman work. Right, uh, that's pretty. That sounds like a very formative experience in terms of uh, really a core for for how it it probably started to develop. Between then and, and now, uh, I mean, how much has the process changed? How refined is the process? Is it still growing and developing? Is it pretty? Is it pretty structured?
2: Well, you know, I'm hoping somebody that I train comes along and turns the whole process on its ear and makes it, you know, at the very least, briefer, a a shorter-term model. (laughs) I would be delighted if somebody could do that. Um, Otherwise, I've laid it out, you know, in pretty uh, high detail. You know, there's a 500-page manuscript. Uh, There's 27, 28 chapters um there's every uh rationale you can think of why to why to favor the body over the mind Hmm. and all through the book i call it body mind not mind body um as a way to to condition the public basically that when we talk about healing we're talking about the body mind not the mind body um and Every chapter builds on that theme that the body is the key and it gives all the neurobiology. It gives all of the uh, mystical practices that seem to emerge as part of the healing process, like meditation. Um, All those topics are covered. There's a case history in there. Um, There's a way to do genograms or family trees. There's everything imaginable in there. So, um, you know. If I were to leave, I'm well documented you know <laughs> <laughs> well
0: uh, and you said mystical, which is really interesting is there uh, you know in body, mind versus mind body, mm-hmm. is there a space for let's say someone has a a a spiritual or or soul practice you know how do you how do you see that participating or not participating in in the process?
2: Uh, I think ultimately um what we're trying to do is to create an experience of integration. That's really what we're trying to do. Um, When the nervous system shifts gears and goes from a trauma setting to an expansive, open setting, um, really what we're doing is creating integration. And I think clients need to understand what integration feels like as much as they need to know how grief feels in the body. The ability, the being literate, the being um, literate when it comes to the body means that a person knows how to read themselves from the inside out uh, equally when they're feeling pleasant to when they're not feeling pleasant. And they're gonna find themselves in a better place to keep the systems unclogged you know hmm.
0: well and that's a an interesting concept in general in terms of i mean thinking of 2021 right now and uh i'll give you an example of the olympic athlete who just uh said for mental health reasons she's no longer moving forward and there are some some other athletes i don't have a, a, a voice in this i've never been an olympic athlete you know saying that that's part of performance when things get hard, when something is unpleasant. And that's where you push forward and show up. And that's where the greatness is created. That's one, you know, position people are, are taking versus, uh, you know, there's also a, a subsequent group of people now that think everything should feel good all the time and almost have a overly positive spot. And I, I find one of my, you know, core beliefs is the truth is usually somewhere in the middle of two mm. hard truths. But how do you see when you talk about someone figuring out what's unpleasant or pleasant in the healing process? What does that mean to you?
2: It's a very simple equation. It really is. It's um, really what we're trying to do when we do the stick work. When we use the stick, is get the body um, activated you know, get it um, revved up a little bit. And when that happens, there's an opening note, almost like in a symphony, where you don't quite know where it's going to be on the scale, and you just kind of keep your ears, you know, ready to hear whatever comes. And we call that the physical healing script. Hmm. So somebody can be directed to look at their body to focus on how it feels in their chest and abdominal cavities, for instance. And you would think that that would take a lot of education, (laughs) but it doesn't. You know, people get it immediately. And the first um, way to identify that first note, so to speak, in the symphony, is whether the client is experiencing that sensation as positive, neutral, or unpleasant. Mm. And... Wherever that falls in, we don't care. We just want a good read. That's all. Um, because if it's negative, is a likelihood that their system's wisdom has said, "Let's grieve. Hmm. and let's purge. And let's do that together. And let's have somebody hold your hand this time, and you're going to get over the peak, and you're going to come down the other side of the mountain this time. you know Or the system could start on neutrality. Or you know, neutrality always falls into the well-being category. So maybe the system is titrating a void. There's a void where they just don't feel like their needs have been met very much. And there's an emptiness. And it's a void that wants to be filled with something. And so the wisdom of the system is to say, okay, priority number one in this moment is pumping in some well-being even though it's you know a slow drip kind of iv kind of well-being um and um it's really up to the healer to see these shades these subtleties because the client won't and you have to see it for them and as you do this um you know when there's a when there's a joint focus on something you know in physics it catalyzes it; it makes it more intense. Mm-hmm. So, if you're calling it right, and the client's agreeing with you, and it's well-being, and okay, don't get too smug here because your system is kind of, you know, needing it. Um, so, let's just sit here and let the let that experience encode in your system, and let's see where the next place is that your body's going to take us. Let's just be ready for a shift to happen at some point. And so you can go 20, 30, 40 minutes this way where the therapist is doing most of the talking and the client is just confirming or not confirming uh, what you think you see. Hmm. So,
0: you know, and since you brought up physics earlier, when you were talking about adult attachment inventory, I believe that's it, right? Adult attachment inventory. You said over, you know, they can predict things up to 80% of the time and I, I, I guess it's been a while since so I've about it, but once upon a time they called it the hard sciences, you know, chemistry, right. physics versus... And now, I don't... It'd be interesting to see if physics with quantum mechanics and everything really is technically a hard science, the way that keeps evolving, but then social science. And so for social sciences, for a phenomena to occur, if I remember, something had to be... It seemed pretty low, 5% or 3% statistically <coughs> significant. Uh with your work, are you are you measuring things like that in terms
2: of? Yeah, I, I I'm not. I should be, but I'm not. Um, I could very easily just take heart rate, or take um, you know the vital signs, blood pressure, any of those things, and keep track of those things because. Um, The people who have done the research, like uh, Stephen Porges, uh, 35 years developing an understanding of what the vagal nerve does in the system, the vagus, you know, polyvagal system. Um, And what he found out is if heart rate, for instance, uh, can be reduced, meaning during excitable times and quiet times, the the span of fluctuation narrows it gets less Hmm. there's a correlation to mental health Hmm. so if you see somebody with uh you know a pretty wide band of fluctuation within these different uh physiological measures especially heart rate and stuff like that um And then you can track that long enough and intensely enough to know, okay, it's really narrowed. You're going to see corresponding improvements and optimization emotionally in that person. Yeah, that is a,
0: it's like a a stability is the first word that comes to mind. I I think of, uh, I I enjoy some physical activity like boxing and jujitsu and MMA and things like that. And. Uh, One thing that I think as a kid from my upbringing that I took was this, there was so much chaos. I found peace and sort of calming myself internally Mm -hmm. to sort of observe everything versus get caught up in it. Right. And my heart rate in these intense moments where someone's choking you or punching you or chasing you around the ring or whatever, uh, from the very get-go just had this sort of inner calm. And it actually freaked other people out (laughs) because... they notice how calm it is and it's sort of odd. So that makes sense in terms of tying it to, to mental health. Do you, uh, how, I mean, how do you, so you, you have these measurements and you're, you're talking about 30, 40 minutes of a therapist talking. I mean, when, you, when I think of talk therapy, when I think of how most things work, the, the client is usually doing a lot of the sharing to work through things. Can you tell more about you? Would you be okay describing sort of your, your overall whole process?
2: Yeah, um, the client comes in every week. Um, I maintain a very high level of receptivity. In other words, it's important to me as the person taking on the guiding, healing role to be welcoming, to be there, to have the lights on, uh, to look like I was expecting this person to show up Mm -hmm. and to be a bright enough attitude where the client's not distracted with me. So I say that because I witness other therapists in my building showing up with a client sitting on the floor in the hallway, Mm. you know, waiting for them to come because they're late. And to me that would be the biggest tear in the relationship. So, you know, with that in mind, the person comes in, they're happy to come in, um, they sit down, I usually try to encourage a very informal uh, exchange because I want some bonding to happen. If we're going to go deeper and deeper and deeper, uh, the bonding needs to start right from the get-go. So that's how I conceptualize bonding in the very few, first few minutes of the session. And when you're in that kind of environment, the client's going to tell you more. It's like going to a hairdresser or something. You know, they're just going to tell you more. Um, So then what happens is I listen for any clues that tell me this person's coping better. So out of the informal discussion, I usually feed back to that client, okay, you probably didn't hear yourself, but you said this, 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 and this. And these all relate to the treatment goals that you and I identified a long time ago. And I think you're doing better. Um, and it lights them up. And you're kind of out of things to say anyway. We were talking about that when we first met today. Yeah? <laughs> um, and so now this is a, a chance because the conversation's run out, the informality has run out, where I make a, a, a very clear designation that, okay, we're going to turn the focus internal now. We're going to go away from our conversation right now. And as we go away from the conversation, you're going to turn your attention into how your body feels and you're going to close your eyes and you're going to let whatever's there come to your attention. You're not going to go chase it or seek it out. Um, and I just guide them, you know, I guide them into a body awareness to see really how the how the energy is clustering because if somebody says, well, I can't get out of my head. Okay. Okay. I know what's happening here. Um, I know what tactic to take there. Um, And there's, you know, after all this time, there's, there's really virtually nothing somebody can tell me that I haven't figured out a way to get around yet. You know, (laughs) very few things. Well,
0: one thing you said that's really fascinating, too, is you said when people are sharing, they don't hear what they say. Mm -hmm. And that when I think of that, I think of awareness, a lot of things. Is that something that you find with your work? The the more you work with someone, maybe it's a first session or I don't know how many sessions someone may end up doing with you, but you're able to raise that level of awareness through some of the work?
2: Yeah, I, I think, you know, most people that have attachment trauma also have a fair level of disconnection from everyday living. Mm. I wouldn't say clinical dissociation, but maybe a pseudo dissociation. So, you know, yesterday when I did a demonstration uh, in a zoom call, um, the lady opened her eyes after the stick work and said, everything's brighter. We were outside and it was sunny. And she's saying, everything is brighter. that's really kind of uh, an indicator that she's more present. And so I think as people integrate, their capacity to be more mindful and present grows significantly.
0: That's really incredible. Yeah. Do you, uh, what are your thoughts on, on, you know, I know Johns Hopkins is doing a lot of research, it's popping up left and right, but the use of uh, things like psilocybin or other psychedelics with the type of work you're doing.
2: Um, I, yeah, I tend to view that kind of thing as, um, as a way to support the work. I don't view it hardly any differently than if somebody went to a psychiatrist and got an antidepressant. Um, this is yet another neuromodulating effort. You know, you can shock the system with chemicals, you can shock it with electricity and you can shock it with interaction. Those are the, those are the things that most affect. Um, so I've had a number of clients that have done pretty regular ayahuasca trips and, um, the, their experience under ayahuasca is very similar to what they feel in session. You know, there's a very similar right brain dominant processing that happens. These drugs tend to, to hijack the right hemisphere of the brain. And that's the most fertile place. That's where trauma is held. That's where stories are made. That's where... We forget time so that we can be creative. Um, You know, that's where you want to be. So because we've put the train on the tracks and they're going in the right direction through the therapy, I think when they do their ayahuasca or whatever they do, um, and there's more tendency now to mini-dose instead of hit hit you hard with it. Hmm. Um, So what we do see is Better consolidation of that integrating effort when people do these strokes. So,
0: we've talked about uh, NLP in the past, neurolinguistic programming. And one of the things I found really fascinating about that, and I guess uh, someone was telling me yesterday, Joe Dispenza has a model where he talks about like a movie, mind movie, but the ability to go back. I remember just reading a a basic NLP book in the first chapter after the introduction of how not to use it and some, uh, ethics involved with it and when to use it. But then it was a, you know, practice on yourself Mm -hmm. and you essentially could take a memory and, and sometimes uncovering those memories is probably something you experience. It's more challenging for people to figure out because you actually have to know what you're looking at, but essentially you, you take a memory, you can crank up the volume, you can turn the brightness, you can make it a cartoon, you can do whatever you want. You can manipulate that memory. And I know they use it for, uh, many things. You're probably way more well-versed than I am in this, but have you, have you found are there similarities in the, in the stick work in terms of memory shaping, uh, to other things you've seen? Uh,
3: yeah, I mean, so that's kind of what I would call reprogramming. And a lot of times it's very effective and you know, I had studied that before I learned anything about the stick. And so now I'm playing around with a lot of different things that I know much more about, um, you know, Peter's method. And I think that reparenting is is a lot of uh, stick work. So once the person has been schooled in on the process of the stick, then you can start to incorporate those types of memories and that kind of reprogramming and the reparenting.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Um. Uh, you know, I, I, there's a there's a thing called implicit memory, and implicit memory is another memory bank that we all have, and it's body based, and um, it's it's unlike brain neurons. When you're in the body, you're got a different calculation. You know, there isn't a cognitive intelligence. This is a non cognitive intelligence. And one has to say, what the hell is that, you know? I don't know, you know, (laughs) it just is a wisdom that I've been watching for now a couple of decades and have learned to trust it. But one of the the built-in defaults that we have is into implicit memory. And our implicit memory banks get shut off, get turned off, so that if you wanted to well up a memory uh, about your childhood, for instance, You may not be able to do it now. It's not like welling up uh, a memory of your address or your date of birth or something like that. There is no welling up sensation. Mm. So often in therapy, what happens is these memory banks, the implicit memory banks, get triggered. And people say, geez, I haven't thought about that in ages. Or uh, I didn't think I remembered anything about my childhood. And all this stuff is starting to come up now. You know, um, these are all implicit memory banks. And it's like our systems are like self-cleaning ovens. They're going <laughs> to find every nook and cranny before they're done. You know, and the implicit memory banks would be buried deep in the system.
0: Yeah, that's, uh, you know, as you bring up ayahuasca too, uh, my understanding there's a obviously a purging process where you... You get rid of a what's in your system, comes right back out. And uh, I know my experience with, with fasting over several years, going on these fasting things, I, I feel like it does uh, influence and, and help in many ways my ability to uh, sometimes think or extract memories or reflect on something. I feel like I have a very clean system, like the self-cleaning oven. Uh, someone described it to me once, too. We get that gut feeling. Feeling, And they they called it the limbic mind, the limbic brain. Is that something you're familiar with?
2: Well, you know, we're built vertically. In other words, um, if you really tracked each human being's evolution and could see how their nervous system evolved, um, everything starts, the limbic system's at the bottom rung, you know, of that nervous system. And the limbic system is one of the first things that it's like having uh, software. When you come into the world, that has to be programmed. Mm. And so it's just sitting there dormant, unprogrammed. And so if safety is is clearly felt by the newborn, um, their limbic system is going to be more robust. Mm. If they had a lot of uh, torment, physically then their limbic system is not going to be reconfigured it's not going to be triggered into a molecular structure that will support health it won't happen so you know the kid's going to grow up anyway and go to the next level of development and there they are stuck with that limbic phase you know they missed out Um, And so the next phase becomes that that much harder. And that next phase may find some integration, but not enough to claim it. And so if you're stacking one on top of it, by the time you get up here in your neocortex, that whole left brain, right brain coordination thing isn't even a remote possibility, even for a lot of adults who have trauma.
0: And... That, when they say that what is it your prefrontal cortex develops what early twenties, mid-20s, something like that in terms of final
2: <laughs> our late twenties, I think. Late kids. 20s. Yeah.
0: I feel like that's about the that's about the time I feel like I actually started making better decisions. It too. can
2: go to the late twenties. Yeah. I call it adult adolescence, <laughs> you know, from like 19 through 26 uh, is adult adolescence. Yeah. And the the executive functioning centers of the brain and the neocortex are just crystallizing at that time. And so it's like a kid that couldn't do division, you know, and, you know, three months later their brains had evolved and division was easy. You know, Mm -hmm. the same thing is true about life for somebody going through that. Some people have the maturation in their early twenties, you know, um, and you know, I think my son was that way. He he had it young. He had a, he had that maturation very young. Um and you know, I can say that I raised a secure two securely attached children. And so it's another selling point for why this process works. <laughs>
3: I do have a question or, well, I kind of know the answer, but maybe you could tell other people. So who would benefit from this? You know, the first thing that I usually hear people say is, well, I had a great childhood, so I don't have any attachment issues or, you know, I don't have any trauma. And I, I'm curious to how do you answer that question and can't everyone benefit from from this and most people do have attachment issues even if they had a wonderful you know upbringing
0: what what are yeah
2: what are some benefits okay um I, i always like to cite the four main benefits from the model um you know but it's an interesting thing i do get people who are securely attached coming into my office and they don't have um Insecure attachment profiles in any stretch of the imagination. Um, And so people say, well, what do you do with them, you know? Um, And usually the reason I get them is they have been too naive in life and the predators have found them, Mm. you know, and they needed to be roughed up a little bit and, you know, told that it's okay to have a little cynicism uh, (laughs) once in a while. And so that's how you deal with those people. But um, I think what I kind of abandoned your question about, you know, what about the therapy? What are some of the distinguishing characteristics of it? Um, I, I think severity is significant uh, because nobody's going to sit through three to six years of therapy as a discretionary Exercise, Mm
1: -hmm.
2: you know, nobody's going to do that. Um, And I know, as as a healer practitioner, when it doesn't feel very vital, and I'm sitting opposite somebody who really doesn't need or want the change that comes when somebody does need and want it. Um, So um, there's enough people out there suffering from attachment trauma to say that we have a pandemic of attachment trauma. We really do have a pandemic of that. And we wouldn't be having all the world-related problems if people were generally more securely attached, you know. And so as we come through this period where we're almost taken over by a dictator, you can look at Nazi Germany and see what happened to child rearing and everything else decades after they left office and the you know the Germans have a form of insecure attachment that's kind of off the charts because they're all subjected to that so um, there's more than enough work out there, and there are more than enough people that would invest in three to six years. Um, Some people, from a financial point of view, can't do weekly therapy. So it's very possible to do twice a a month, shorter sessions, less money, if you really, really want to work with somebody. Uh, But the transformation process has to be very clearly delineated for the client that they're not going to transform quickly.
0: Hmm. That is, uh, there's a, (laughs) one of my favorite books ever is this, it's called Van Peter something. It's in German. I don't know if you ever heard of it, but it's a a children's book. I have a copy of it on your summer where you can try to find it. And, uh, it's, it's German lessons for children, like how to behave, but it's Mm -hmm. their version of a fairy tale. And there's like Peter runs with scissors, but it's very German in a sense that he chops off his fingers, <laughs> and so it's things you don't do, you know, hot soup, and then the kid catches on fire, and just all these uh, really crazy, very German, right. and that's their, like you said, their child rearing practice, and
2: their level of detachment as a culture is yeah. enormous, you know.
0: Uh-huh. So, figure it. We could jump in there. Uh, I was
3: going to say, I, I forget exactly what I was going to say, maybe just the length
0: of the, the treatment,
3: but you could also, yeah. I mean, you, you, from the very first session, you, it's like almost seeing is believing. You're like, wow, something's going on in my body. Something is happening. And, you know, years of therapy, are, you're not going to cut, you're never going to touch that. So it is, it's, it's not really comparable. I mean, you know, you might go to traditional talk therapy for you know 20 years and, and nothing really changes and, and that doesn't mean to say that it wasn't beneficial for that person but when we're talking about actually healing this is this is where it's at really is is in the body if you want some sort of a transformation
0: well and that's one of the things i that attracted me to nlp is uh, hearing you know talk therapy and seeing that someone could could go and do that type of work for any period of time that long, and then also having a lot of experiences in life where someone made an instant decision, like you said, a desire is also important. Someone mm-hmm. has to actually truly have the desire versus saying, "Oh, I'd like to get this fixed." You know, let's do this, but they never actually take the action or make that decision. I'm going to fix it now. Right. When you say three to six years, I mean that does seem like a long time, but at the at the same time, uh, I believe you know great things, all great things take time and if you're healing in the in the process that's really good what's the what's the fastest you've ever seen someone have I mean it seems like an immediate impact but when you're gauging that over that course of time what's the fastest someone has come got you know done the style stick work by the way it's such a cool <laughs> name for it the stick work and and had it influence their life in a way that they maybe felt like they no longer needed it but um they were in a good spot
2: um I don't know that I've been able to, you know, tie the bow on anybody, so to speak, after 10 months, Mm -hmm. you know. Um, But I have had people within less than a year, maybe, you know, nearing a year's mark, who were able to demonstrate to me that their systems were robust enough that whatever we did was gonna have a life of its own. In other words, the people that I've made work, have worked with for seven, eight, nine years may leave therapy. And I may not hear from them for two or three years. And then out of the blue, a family member or even the client will be back in touch with me. And they'll even come into the office and I'm blown away at how much better they look three years later than when they left therapy and what started to occur to me is that we had reset the system enough where equilibrium now is favoring Mm well-being and when equilibrium favors well-being you've got a constant source of replenishment if your system is incapable of generating well-being you're you're gonna be in therapy until that self-capacity starts to happen so i have seen people in less than a year get that capacity
0: wow it's almost (laughs) like you're you're building a a baseline and once you hit that baseline like a like a plant. if we took a clipping off of a plant right you know propagated it stuck in water it'd grow roots and now it's growing its own self so they have Their their system now has the resources to, hey, I want to be here. I don't like that other place we are and and work towards that.
2: Right. And Porges kind of helped us understand that because Stephen Porges with the polyvagal theory said, we have three pathways uh, for responding to the world. And those are all governed by the vagus nerve. And one is fight or flight. One is uh, immobilization, and the other one is connection. And it's the connecting one where people are most deficient. You know, the system, as I said, comes off the shelf as, as uh, software that has to be programmed. And if you don't have enough interpersonal experiences of, of closeness and well being, you're connecting one of the three pathways. The connecting pathway doesn't have any reserve. So when you get into a tight situation, you're gonna go to where the cupboards do have supplies. And that's in fight or flight or in freeze. And that's all you know how to do because there's nothing in the other pathway to pull from. So as we do the stick work, And there's a wisdom in the body that that balances these three systems. Um, Eventually, people are independent and able to find the strength within to not internalize, to not um, be thrown off and off kilter for extended period. They learn how not to do those things. Hmm. So. So it's again, it's a story about bringing experience to the client of nurturance. And, um, you know, as Tara was saying, this is remedial parenting. And when somebody feels that remedial parenting, their systems are, you know, kind of the mother load of biology here around attachment. And they're just gonna tell a therapist, you can make a lame intervention. And because you're dealing in such a powerful area, it's probably gonna work anyway, you know? So
3: (laughs) (laughs) and 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 I think it's it's so individualized as to like how long it's gonna take somebody Mm -hmm. and and it all depends. And I think, you know, in the healing world, a lot of times it, it is. A little bit accelerated because people have done so many different things. They've tried so many different modalities, and often I think this work is like, oh, this is it. Like this is what I've been missing. This is, you know, I I, I did the ayahuasca. I did, you know, the other somatic, you know, type therapies, which are all great and wonderful. But this is often that missing link that a lot of people that are seeking and searching for,
2: you know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's no panacea. Um, and one of the skill sets that an arm therapist has to have is how to believe in the healing process when the client doesn't. Because mm. the client will get worn down. They will get a distorted view of how they take, you know, four steps forward and maybe a half a step back and they think they're falling apart. Um, the therapist has to believe in the process, has to be able to describe why setbacks have a place in the healing process, you know? so Well,
0: that's human nature, too, to have sort of a, a negative bias. In fact, I think that's a cognitive distortion. You know, maybe once upon a time you're walking through the jungle, there might be a tiger behind the tree. so you have to be a little bit skeptical. Yeah. And, and strong leaders are able to help folks get clear on that. Uh, so, you said arm therapist, is that because I've been calling them stick warriors in my mind? <laughs> <laughs> so, I was going to say, how well, many stick warriors do you have yeah. out there? But
2: I've done everything in my power to avoid the word, the term stick work, you know? And
1: <laughs> okay. Of course,
2: immediately that sticks. Um, uh, I don't have a whole big group, really, uh, because even getting a therapist trained in this model. Is a difficult needle to thread. <laughs> it really is because uh, people are both fascinated and afraid of the term attachment all at the same time. Mm-hmm. And my experience over the last 30 years has been if somebody can get me to tell them what I do in a social setting, I'll eventually go, all right, I'm an <laughs> attachment therapist, you know, if you have to know. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're immediately intrigued. And by the time I'm done with the first idea, their eyes have glazed over. Hmm. And I just couldn't believe it. You know, They just start off with such intrigue and interest. And almost as fast as you start to try to find the best things to tell them, <laughs> they're no longer available. Uh, you know? And that's been consistent over all this time. Why do you think that is? Well, I'm glad you asked. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'm speculating, you know, this is conjecture of the highest order. But my conjecture is that we learn certain things in utero. In other words, there are certain human skills that come to us at an instinctive, purely, purely instinctive level, in no other way. Um, Attachment is one of those things. Another one of those things are the electromagnetic fields that are bouncing off of us all the time. We, we learn in utero how to process those electromagnetic fields uh, before we gain consciousness. So by the time we gain consciousness, both attachment experience and the capacity to feel the resonating presence of another person energetically in a room with your eyes closed are things that we have mastered in pretty high order by the time we even become cognitive. My guess is that that depth of learning turns people off to cognitive learning about it later. Hmm. In other words, you're not going to tell me anything I don't know. Uh You know, I was a baby. (laughs) (laughs) I know what that's all about. Uh. To my bones, I know what that's all about. And you think you're going to sit here and give me some platitudes about what it's like? And, um, you know, I I think the same thing is true. People always say to me, you know, you're like a Jedi when you're working. Um, And that's the mystical part of neurobiology. Sometimes it looks mystical. And I'll say, no, it isn't. You know, I've sensitized myself in a higher way to electromagnetic fields than the average person. Mm. And when you're not talking, you have to do something with your time. And one of those things is that you do start tracking the electromagnetic vibes that happen. And so it isn't just a facial expression. It isn't just a flushing of the face. It's that plus the electromagnetic uh, information that's, that's, that's coming my way. And I see therapists that I train grow in that regard. But it's like, we haven't developed a way to talk about that. And the same thing is true. We haven't developed a way to talk about attachment as a culture.
3: Hmm. And do you think that's maybe why healers, or people that identify with healers or more mystical practices, are successful arm therapists? Because they have that ability to connect on that electrode, you know?
2: Yeah. I mean, I've been struggling to, to the depths of myself to prove to the mainstream therapists that this is legit by, you know, finding the neurobiology and citing the scientists and, you know, just put enormous amounts into that. And so the minute I put out my first flyer, you know, to see if anybody's interested in knowing more about it, all the metaphysical people come to me. Mm. Not one mainstream therapist, all the metaphysical people. (laughs) And it was a little shocking. And I had to kind of say, okay, you don't alienate uh, an audience that's just organic. You know, if they're there, you've got to understand what's going on. (laughs) And, you know, I'm glad I did because I think um, the metaphysical healer have been um, a a group that's not gotten any thank yous from anybody ever about anything they've ever done. <laughs> <laughs> well,
0: the uh, uh, our ego. Well, I'm working on something right now, and the, a, a part of it's called your ego is not your amigo. <laughs> and when you when you describe, you know, why people maybe tune out a bit and their eyes roll over going into talking about attachment, I, I find it probably is very much linked to academia or, or perhaps some folks not latching onto it as well. And that is if we spend, if we've invested a lot of time into something and to hear that there, and this is just a, a people thing that there might be something new or better. Part of us has to be able to disconnect from all of the work we've done or our belief in order to do like you did and, and go rogue. Right, right. And so that's a, as a challenge for most people because it, in, in some sense they could take it as an attack on their their little house of, of structure and belief they've built, and not, not all folks are open to that.
2: Well, you know, one of the, the – that's true. But I think the inner working of all that is it's an invisible thing to the average person. But um, when you talk about ego states, you're really talking about the engine – that allows us to interface with the world (laughs) these ego states are really our engine and if you were if we were automobiles and we were to pop the hood and look under the hood we would see ego states you know um and we're going to have ego states that's just a fundamental part of our architecture you know, they're neurological modules that hold together as neural nets in the brain for a lifetime. Um, and so they're going to exist. What you want is for these ego states to be collaborative, like a good family.
1: Hmm.
2: You know, a good family would collaborate. They would have fluidity of roles. They would uh, help each other out. They would be emotionally attuned. Um you want that happening inside a person's inner community of ego states. But what happens is one of the other internal members takes over. And it's usually um, a, kind of an emissary of the child. And it's, it's, it belonged to the child in early life but split off. And that's called your protector. And oftentimes in conversations about attachment, I think the disinterest is the person's protector says, wait a minute, we decided a long time ago that you weren't going to go there and, (laughs) you know, stir up this hornet's nest. So what the hell are you doing now, you know? And I think the guardian protectors and most people get triggered the minute we start talking about attachment as well. That makes perfect sense how many of these ego states are there depends on how much developmental disappointment you've sustained <laughs>
0: wow okay
2: yeah. i have a client who i've worked with for a very long time who happens to be a therapist um and her history of abuse was you know she should not have survived it really um and we've drilled down and drilled down and drilled down and drilled down. And her little girl appeared visually one day in the visual feeling, healing script. Sometimes you'll get a visual healing script. Um, and the visual healing script usually supersedes the body based script because it moves faster. It's more intense. Mm -hmm. Um, It brings more integration in a shorter amount of time. So if somebody's got the horsepower in their system to do that, you go with it. But finally hers lit up just out of the blue. And there, lo and behold, was the little girl, part of her, uh, who appeared as what she called embryo girl. She was an embryo. And she was white. And she was in this artificial womb. And surrounding her were dozens and dozens of other little girls putting all their attention on this little embryo girl in the womb. Now, where we drill down to was how far her child part receded in her system to be safe. And she's not going to be okay until we can get that little embryo girl integrated into the present day. There's no way that she's ever going to be okay with that going on.
0: So you're, you're unifying, you're integrating the actual ego states too. Is there, is there an ideal
2: number of ego states? The fewer, the better.
0: <laughs> I mean, one, yeah, it seems like one.
3: <laughs> when you say one, ego states, are you yeah. talking about like the child part, the parent part? Right. Like, Can you be more you specific on those? Because like, so. well, there's a lot of different ego state models. Is there one thing? They're all the that same,
2: though. They're okay. all <laughs> the same. You know, uh, most people go to um, Robert Schwartz's <laughs> IFS. Yeah, that's um, easy. He did an excellent job in making it understandable. But, I mean, there are books back in the 60s. I'm okay, you're okay with all the ego states. Um, Watkins and Watkins, who are two professors out of the University of Chicago, wrote the best textbooks. And that's where I think Robert Schwartz got a lot of his stuff, was from the Watkins. Um, The truth is that they're an undeniable part of our structure. And the more fluid and interactive they are, the better. And there's a term known in the field called the separateness defense, meaning that if you've had a lot of trauma, your ego states are going to live in a defended, separate state, and they don't know how to get out of that. Mm. So virtually all the work that we do is to unify that adult and child state, because that was Mother Nature's mandate that that happened for the person to be okay. Okay. So you're,
0: com- you're creating these compartments. I'm going to live over here because this is wounded. I'm mm-hmm. going live over here because this is okay or yeah. not wounded in, yeah. in essence.
2: Yeah. And the saddest thing that happens is, um, the separation of ego states where usually the child state had taken the biggest blows, the longest, and remains the most wounded of all the ego states, meaning that they'll activate first and foremost over the others. Hmm. And so the child state really feels like all adults are for crap, really, you know, after they've had to fend for themselves for an entire lifetime. And the therapy is really kind of to get them to entertain the notion that their adult might be okay, you know. And that uh, you know, I tell them I've spent a lot of time getting to know your adult, and they're okay. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, that validation is really powerful. I mean, you, you shared a couple of things that have touched on my own personal life in a sense. Like I, uh, from a pretty young age, you know, took care of my younger sisters and didn't really have uh, parental figures around. And when they were, it was almost like, hey, it's great if you're not here type of uh, mm-hmm. an environment. And, uh, but I also remember certain points in my life, like you talked about that recognition, you know, I, I had a strong sense of doing most things by myself, but I had these uh, great people that came in my life sort of uh, intermittently, you know, mm-hmm. someone had an influence on me here, someone had influence on me there, and were invested time in me to give me some, hey, you're really good at this, let's spend some time talking and, and learning about those things. And I think absolutely shaped it, but it it was not a quick process, that's for sure.
2: No, and I mean, I think um, having the the contingency, you didn't expect to have to be taking care of your sisters, you know. It was a contingency of life that you didn't really anticipate. But yet, it was formative. It shaped you. And um, it probably cultivated in you uh, an empathy, a sympathy quotient that's higher than the average person, you know. But... Um, I kind of skipped out too on what were the signs that somebody has finished therapy. <laughs> you know, one of one of the, reminded me one of the things is that integration of the adult and child is like what happens in that ten months when that's all that person got was the integration of that adult and child was so dramatic and so good that it became the platform for more healing. Okay, Um, what we would look for in addition to that would be a pacing ability. In other words, people who are highly integrated and optimized manage their life like it's a symphony. And they Mm -hmm. don't put any effort into it. It's just automatic. So the way they handle every aspect of their life, from food to money to time off to project... The way they handle all that is just a symphony to watch. Pacing is good. The third thing that I notice in all clients who have made a pretty complete recovery um, is newfound creativity, is the third thing. So you got resilience, you got pacing, you got newfound creativity. People come in at some point in therapy doing something dramatically different on a creative front. And it's like, whoa. Um, and then the fourth thing is, um, acceptance of body image hmm. so if you have those four things that's what I've noticed consistently over the years with people that do completely finish the Is they have those four things and we're sitting there looking at each other like now what do we do you know You're good.
0: (laughs) You just touched on some of the, I mean, when you think of some of the major components of what is a challenge in society right now from body image to debt to, I mean, that's that's pretty significant. So those are the four main benefits of your work and arguably some of the biggest challenges that all of society is facing at the moment.
2: Yeah. Yeah,
3: but if we were all <laughs> if we were all healed, what would happen to capitalism?
2: <laughs> well, you know, I, I think there are bigger things happening than capitalism. Um, you know, I was just uh, reading Fareed Zakaria's book. He's a very wise Indian man that has one of the news channels. And of all the news journalists, I think he's probably the most insightful. And he was talking about AI. And... <laughs> My God, where we're at and what we're facing is, you know, we're leaving a biological uh, revolution. If we look at Earth since its earliest days, have been in one revolution after the next. And we're now leaving the biological revolution and going into an artificial world revolution where work won't be necessary, AI already can um, diagnose better than any doctor. You know, hospitals that have AI doing all their diagnoses do far better than the doctors do. You know, and there's hardly anything that AI is not gonna do in that regard. So I think what we're gonna have is a lot of idle people Whose only salvation will be in finding their own creativity. I think that's where we're going to end up. I
0: think we're we're that's happening right now. I mean, you look at us sitting here on a podcast. Some people would argue that's a form of creativity. When you look at social media, yep. and it was you know labeled as a, a damaging, terrible thing. Uh, so many folks are now. This is happening in the economy where people are looking. You know, businesses are going. Hey, I can't hire people, and and there's certain people that you know, are choosing not to work. There are certain people that have found they can reduce their lifestyle and live off of, you know, what they figured out over the last year. But there's also a fair number of folks, folks that I know uh, on on a pretty large scale that have found creative ways online to earn an income and don't want to go back to that restaurant job.
2: Huge, huge, you know? So um, I think that's what we're all facing. And for those of us doing attachment work, we may be the last bastion of biology as the world (laughs) evolves, really. You know, that we still have a tie to our basic biology and know how to um, make the biology as good as possible. That may be a very unusual thing as we see the world moving into this technical kind of place. Uh, that we still have this primitive skill to do this. You know?
0: what? Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, you, you brought up capitalism too, and I find that's a, those are, these are fun conversations mm-hmm. in a sense of uh, where people get very kind of edgy around sometimes. And if you, if you look at, I saw something recently, you know, look at the, the countries that are proponents of different things. One of the biggest proponents right now of AI is actually China. Mm-hmm. And they like it for the control aspect, it seems like. And that's purely communistic. Yeah. Uh, and capitalism, liber- you know, if you go libertarian, there's so many different things. I'm, I'm reading a biography on Rockefeller right now. Wow. And that man is really fascinating. And he, you know, there's so many things that were said about him or, or have been said. And, you know, you kind of, again, the truth is somewhere in the middle. Uh, they say he was greedy. When you look at his ledgers from a very young age, he was giving away significant amounts of money when he was making $100 a year, giving away, you know, $5 of it or whatever to the church, right. things like that. But he, at his core, using all of his temperance and his his Baptist background, and his beliefs, he really believed all of things that he was doing from a capitalistic perspective were actually a form of cooperation by building the Standard Oil Company.
2: Was that written by Isaacson?
0: Uh, good question, Who the author. Is. It's called Titan. Yeah. So this one was, uh, it's probably... I I think Isaacson
2: did do a biography on him. He did one on Einstein too. That was pretty amazing. Okay. Yeah. Yeah.
0: But it's just this concept of, of cooperation. And, you know, if you look at nature, there's three phases of everything. There's the start phase, which is inception. And this, this is true, I think for anything in life, Mm -hmm. then there's the, the change cycle, this middle cycle. And this is, always and I don't I don't like to use words like always or never those things very loosely but the, the middle cycle change is always growth because as soon as that stops you enter a decay mode and when I look at technology or AI or I mean look at our cell phones those things are practically attached to us anyways you might as well just sew them into a uh, you like that drink, by the way? I do. <laughs> it's pretty good. Oh, awesome. Okay. i may have to try it. Uh, yeah, definitely. There, there might be another some. one in there. So. I'll,
1: get, I'll grab one in a
0: second. Um, uh, in terms of that evolution of, of humans, I mean, is there some version where... Us becoming more robotic from a biological perspective is going to ensure our survival when you like a meteor strikes or something.
2: Well, <laughs> Sakaria said in his book um, that his prediction is that AI and humans will find a point of collaboration, and in that point of collaboration we'll never know whether they could take us over at any moment Hmm. and we'll live without knowing that, but we'll stay in a form of collaboration for indefinitely. Getting the chills here. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. He's the first person that I've read where I can trust that he has some visionary, real visionary capabilities, you know? So that made sense to me, you know, that, um, you know we're already there where they could take us over, um, uh, but nobody quite believes, even in the deep sciences, uh, what that would look like, you know. So,
0: I get terrified looking at those Boston dynamics videos. I don't know if you've ever seen them, no. but they have the robotic dogs and they have things that move way too much like a person mm-hmm. for my liking. And I, I also venture down a rabbit hole some time ago, probably two, three years ago, and watched a show called Black Mirror on Netflix. Oh, I've watched oh, all goodness. of those. That's oh, amazing. it's amazing. One right? at a time. <laughs> so do you remember the episode with the the robotic dog? I don't think I saw that yeah, one. Wait, explain, it was um, okay. Yeah, it was what, how that one again?
3: I terrible. Forget. What I
0: always loved about that, and I always describe Black Mirror to someone that hasn't seen it, is it's a show where it's futuristic enough to where you don't go, okay, it's not Star Trek. They're not, you know, mm-hmm. doing light speed around the different galaxies. It's more like, hey, that could happen in five yeah. or ten or fifteen years. So it's, but there's also a lot of human emotion involved. For example, the one in spoiler alert, if you haven't watched it, uh, going to ruin that, but. Uh, where they have the implants and they can rewind things or we watch them and you get to see it, at its core what human emotions, what we can do when we are very powerful around certain things or just how far you can actually take something. So the sort of enlightens us to some of the opportunities with technology, but also some of the the dangers that can ensue. And so the robotic dog one is some sort of a Android dog that's just, I mean, it's pretty graphic in a sense that it's it's hunting people down and there is a, a robotic dog and it's, it people have no comparison to this thing i mean it is taking out people left and right and they can't compete with all of the weapons that they have and it's very smart you know got the heat seeking right. whatever
1: right.
0: this Boston Dynamics has created a dog that looks uh from my memory almost if not identical to that and it is it terrifies me when i see it <laughs>
2: Yeah, what's that D word? There's a D word that describes that genre. Um, it's like they all have negative endings. Oh. And they don't and They don't apologize for them. Yeah. There's a word for that. It's a D word. Um, but, yeah, I mean... Dystopian? Dystopian. Yeah? Okay. These, you know, Black Mirror are all dystopian. Yeah. They're all dystopian accounts of technology, every single one of them. Yeah. So... Um, it's you know, and the it, the author of all that stuff is likened to Rod Serling. They're, they're the New Day, Rod Serling. Uh, what was his show? Um, not start. Um, I had the guy from Star Trek. The outer. And the, the outer Limits. That kind of show. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so kidding. so anyway, <laughs> but um, yeah, I I think we may be one of the last holdovers that can go into the biology of something. And, you know, we're already being um, reminded over and over and over again that advances in technology have just been too fast for our own good. And even our own brain evolution has been too rapid for our own good. And a lot of our brain functions aren't efficient because they evolve too quickly. Like sleep is one of those. Mm. It, it, it could be a lot more efficient, but we evolve too quickly. And we, the price that we pay is that some of these systems are not as efficient as they might be if they had evolved slower over time.
0: Well, and I when I think of technology too, it's easy sometimes. And I I love defining words because technology can sometimes get put in a box, and we automatically think of a computer or a cell phone. And I look back and go, you know, once upon a time, fire was technology, and a sewing machine made it so that people weren't hand sewing anymore. Right. Has there ever been technology? I'm trying to think back where where maybe that did happen. You know, maybe f- fire. Oops, we don't know how to use this, and we just burned all the crops down or something like that, and and we're as a species we were able to adjust?
2: Well, it depends on how, how purely driven we are as a people or how rotten we are. (laughs) (laughs) Really? I mean, I think that's the fight that we're fighting now politically is, are we going to be a decent bunch of people or are we going to be an indecent bunch of people? And, um, whatever group wins will influence all the important things of life, you know, and we don't know.
0: (laughs) Yeah. One of my favorite thoughts, there's a book called Lessons of History by Will and Ariel Durant, a really great book. Mm. And uh, uh, there's a quote in there where the guy says, I don't know what's in the heart of a rascal, but I know what's in the heart of an honest man. And that scares me or that terrifies me. And I think just looking at history, when you look at both Genghis Khan and Jesus, I mean, they're both in the history books. Mm-hmm. Seems like a, a battle of, in perpetuity.
2: Yeah,
1: yeah.
3: And I, and I think that what, what, what keeps coming up for me is that what's the solution to all of this is to heal yourself, and when you heal yourself, you're more present and you're more resilient and it doesn't really matter which way it goes. You know, if the good guys win or the bad guys win at the end of the day, you'll be able to go to sleep. You know, your securely attached self will be able to go to sleep <laughs> and, you know, be okay with it all. So I think that's kind of like the overarching theme of healing, you know, especially with this kind of modality. Yeah.
2: And the rippling, effect, the rippling effects are huge when, You know, people used to say, you're going to work with somebody all this time, and it's at the cost of, you know, literally hundreds of other people not getting addressed. And part of the way that I reconcile the concentrated effort into helping one person heal is that the positive rippling effects are gigundous. They really are. I've seen adult members of families um, straighten out as a result of the you know, the 60, 70-year-old parent getting their heads on straight through the therapy. Mm. Um, and literally everybody um, associated with that person either follows that person into health or drops out of the circle. They're no longer in that person's circle. So, you know, the person who is healing uh, may cycle through quite a few people, but they're also strengthening their circle of people. And I think that has very strong, resounding characteristics in the culture that are, you know, things that can't be measured very easily.
0: So. That is a, a really true thing. I was having that conversation with a friend just yesterday where they're going through a, a growth spurt, you would mm-hmm. say, an adult uh, developmental growth spurt and, you know, going, I'm, I'm sharing this book or this whatever with family or friend and they just don't want to look at it or do it. And I think they're just in that I sort of recognize it for my own processes Over, they're entering into this phase where, you know, some of these folks may not be here in their lives in a year or two or three, four or five years because I I know, if, well, at least in my experience, you know, that's, uh, I'm a believer in you become the the five people you spend the most time with. Mm-hmm. And if I keep a clear vision of of how I imagine my life going, doesn't mean it always does go that way. You know, you, you look at the treasure map, you get to the bridge and the bridge isn't there. Well, you got to figure out something <laughs> different, but uh, you, you sort of want to surround yourself, or at least that's my belief, with the people that um, are most like that that image. And sometimes they make you stretch and grow. And that's a really good thing.
2: Yeah. So, you know, can you summarize everything we talked about? <laughs>
1: yeah. Well,
3: well yeah. I'm actually, I, and we don't have to do this on on here, but I think that you should sit here and, and do a little stick work. A little stick work? We can do some stick
0: work on here. I have, yeah. w- before we jump into that, if you, I have one more question for you, if you don't mind. I'd, I'd love to hear uh, what your, your vision is for the future looks like with everything that you're doing?
2: Um, Despite the fact that I'm really struggling to get people trained or, you know, really clearly understanding that it's not something that can be uh, intellectually taught. You know, I spent all this time deconstructing this intuitive model so everybody would know what it looks like. And all it does is mess them up. (laughs) <laughs> so <laughs> I, I have to really teach everybody to do this instinctively before I can go there. But my vision is that um, there'd be a fair number of people out there that could do this process to the degree that I do. And people always think that I have some special gift or talent. And um you know, I know I do in certain respects, but that doesn't mean this can't be taught, and that people couldn't do it just as well as I do it. So um, that's my my hope and my vision for the future.
3: And when is your next training?
2: Um, we're gonna be doing uh, kind of a demonstration training, uh, which will be for two purposes. that's going to be Uh, September 11th and 12th in Encinitas. And that two-day training is really to give people who have gone through a whole training program with me for five months and did it virtually a chance to come together in person. We're also selectively inviting uh, people who might be interested in uh, joining the next training cohort who could come and watch and participate and get a sense of it. So um, we're putting the word out for that through our website. I have on a sheet of paper there um, that um, people can go to our website or you can even type in, what is it, uh, adult attachment repair model. Those are all spelled out with caps on each word, no space, .com forward slash free course. And so there's a free course at the website that might plug you into as an interested party, what you would actually be um, viewing when you came to the training. Then we'll also start doing interviews for the next cohort, which will start in January for eight months, weekly for eight months. So,
0: and what are some things you, you've mentioned, you know, healer and, and to have an innate, maybe, you know, a potentially natural ability for this. What are How do you gauge that? What are some things you look for in, in someone?
2: Well, you know, in my manuscript, I do have some tools, some measurement tools to look at uh, a person's aptitude for this type of work. And it's all intersubjective, meaning that... Um, if we were to videotape somebody just in a conversation, we would look for their their style of communication, their ability to pick up on subtlety, um, their graciousness as a host or a hostess, <laughs> you know, um, we'd, we'd look at, um, you know, that they've done a fair amount of body exploration and have dabbled in that kind of thing um, and have a pretty good uh, self-care regiment that includes, um, you know, the maintenance of their mindfulness through meditation, through whatever it is they do as a way, exercise, um, whatever they do to maintain self-care. All of those things are important.
0: So that someone that when you measure their heart rate, it's mostly stable. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs>
1: yeah, the, Peter, stable I, enough.
3: I, I was already the, my uh, brain was turning before when we were talking about the heart rate. I was thinking we could definitely use like a heart rate variability monitor for people when they're getting the stick work and and measure um, that. That would be fun.
0: Heck. Oh, go ahead, go ahead. Oh, have you ever heard of the Heart Math Institute? Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah,
3: I use the um, inner uh, whatever the the app is, ah. to, and because the heart monitor clips to your ear and you can track your heart rate very well. You
0: see the the photo up here. Now uh-huh. we're kind of going off and down to a rabbit hole here, but that's a group I work with called the Exchange Group, and uh, the founders of the Heart HeartMath Institute are are members of that too. So oh, we've nice. all sat in rooms and had great conversations, yeah. and it's very it's- cool.
3: It's great. It's great for, you know, science oriented people because it can be tracked. there's a lot of data yeah. involved.
0: When you hear vibes and electromagnetic fields, you're like, <laughs> right. wait, hold yeah. on. Yeah. <laughs> How do I measure my vibe? I can have a vibe measurement.
2: Yeah. That'd be a pretty good app. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, I'd love to do that. I mean, you've seen the Aurora Borealis, right? Uh, in terms of like the Northern Lights. Yeah, and that, yeah. yeah. I mean, that's going on between us all the time. Mm. And it's really a polarity thing. We don't have one molecule in us that's not 50% positive, 50% negative. And that that tension is dynamic. It's not static. And, you know, you were saying before how the system stagnates, you know, or can stagnate. Um, Our systems don't let us stagnate. There's a thing called entropy, which is um, internal stimulation of excitement. That's really what that means. Mm. And it happens spontaneously all the time. So when we hand somebody a stick, we're actually sending their system into spasm. And their system is all, you know, hyped up and in entropy. And when they peek out in that entropy, then there's a possibility of a new order emerging that will find its own way. And we just have to guide that process.
0: How much do you find that, and I know we were like, we we're getting ready to wrap, but now okay, you got me curious <laughs> again. So how much do you find food plays a role in that? In what? In, their, in their, their balance, their positive, negative charge, their vibes, their measurements.
2: Well, I mean, food is is, you know, as much of a curse as it is life-giving you know Mm -hmm. and when people have eating disorders they're usually much worse off than the average person or the even the average client they're much worse off than the average client so you know food is is really interesting um you know we americans are looked at by the french especially as people that eat everything like it was their last meal (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> our oh, plate so sizes true. are right. on average it's, a
2: couple inches larger yeah. than the rest of the world we're
3: not enjoying we're not eating mindfully.
2: <laughs> no and i mean i i've kind of conditioned myself to appreciate what a little edge of hunger feels like as a positive thing
0: 100
2: and i don't think that that's a widely shared value you know i think we have no clue about uh, how hunger is a state of being that we might want to sit in for a minute, you know? Um,
3: but you could also say that, what what is the word, interoception? Yes. That, that so many people in our society don't have that because we're not in tune with our body. So when it plays into the dynamic of food is we don't know hunger cues. We don't know what it's like for our body to feel okay or good or what foods are good for us, what foods aren't. Right. So I'm curious as how that is. There's an overlap there.
2: Well, one of the things in writing the manuscript was, and I wrote it with an academic, so he kept me on straight and narrow. Um, <laughs> um is that interoception is a more difficult process for the person to track you know external stimuli are a hundred times easier for us to track than our internal stimuli unless you're on the spectrum and autistic then everything inside is is very turned on Um, but um Yeah, I mean, interoception and that's why when we do this work, we have to, as healers, um, notice and name. In other words, we may have a subjective and intersubjective sense that somebody is all of a sudden shifted in their internal world and it's heavy and dark right now, but there's very little tangible stuff to say that that's absolutely true. And as the guide, you have to go there and ask, have you noticed a change in the way you're feeling? Because clients don't report things, um, they'll say, yeah, how did you know that? And, you know, (laughs) (laughs) I'll say, I thought we had an agreement here that when things shifted, you would let me know, you know? Um, But they don't because interoception just is not an automatic thing. And it isn't until somebody's in therapy for quite a long time before they have a uh, a noticeable capacity for that stuff, you know. Although somebody else can come in and they can read read their own brainwaves, they know what center of the brain is activated at any given moment, you know. It's
0: pretty powerful. Are you are you familiar with the author Napoleon Hill? Very much. Very much. Have you ever read Outwitting the Devil? Yep. Oh,
2: okay. Yeah, well then she... when you
0: said fifty percent <laughs> negative, fifty percent positive, my yeah. mind immediately yeah. went yeah. there. So. You did
2: say that. I remember that.
0: Yeah, that's at the core of that book, that there are really three disciplines in mm-hmm. life, and that is the discipline of food, sex and thinking. Yeah. And you can even extrapolate it so far as to say when you look back at maybe actually I pulled this from somewhere else too, but When you look at religion, you know, Satan versus God or good versus evil, that that's at the core of the universe at a biological level of this positive and negative charge, good vibes, bad vibes, all of it.
2: Yeah, I'll try to introduce that book to clients who I think are leading day-to-day lives that I don't agree with at all. <laughs> <laughs> That's powerful.
0: Not
3: telling you what to do, but here's this book.
2: <laughs> it's one of the... He can uh, get away with telling you what to do. Yeah. I can't, you know?
0: Well, and the, the history of that book is beautiful in a sense that it was uh, uh, his family, his friends, people asked him not to release it. And then in the 80s, I think it was that lady from the Rich Dad Poor Dad Foundation right. got the rights to it and she published mm-hmm. it. I actually haven't read her annotations. When I give it to people, I said, hey, uh, I always uh, pre-frame it by saying there's someone that published it that put all of her own thoughts right next
2: to it, but it's in bold, so you can ignore that. She was okay, though. Okay. I, I read, you know, she her input was pretty good, actually. Yeah. Uh, she didn't contaminate what he said. <laughs> but, um, you know, I just loved his thinking, always around, and... The definitiveness of purpose um, is quite a good idea, I think, you know, meaning that if you exercise extreme self-discipline in your work or in your workouts or in places, but you lose that definitiveness of purpose when you make a food choice. Yeah. That's where you need definitiveness of purpose there. And if you don't exercise definitiveness of purpose where it needs to be exercised, then you're at the 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 mercy of the devil. One hundred percent to fall into these addictions, you know. In,
0: in essence, and, and as I kind of absorbing everything that you've shared too, when I think of attachment, I, I often think of our relationships, and it's a form of a relationship, but with everything. And so you have you know, your mindfulness practice, you know, taking care of your mind, taking care of your body. There's relation, attachment relationships with, with both of those, uh, with your family, with your work, with mm-hmm. your with your actual purpose, whatever that may be. For some people, it is work to provide uh, with food, with finances. So I have this uh, uh, sketch and kind of outline that I work on. It's, uh, it's a pyramid shape, so it looks a little Illuminati-ish, but it is the uh, seven sort of eight right now areas of life and it is about having a, a framed healthy attachment or relationship with all of those consistently and being uh, purposeful with them
2: well uh, that would be of interest for me to see <laughs> yeah.
0: show it to you sometime. i have a
2: um, pyramid in the book too that deals with bottom up
0: yeah yeah so. it's a pretty common shape i think the ancient alien started it right
2: I guess,
0: I guess. <laughs> uh, well, we can we can leave it on... I, uh, please feel free to go through and uh, unless you have anything else to share, we can give you a, a nice promotion here in terms of how people can... I know you gave your, your website. Feel right. free to share anything you'd like.
3: Yeah, and as somebody that went through... The course, um, the last cohort, I would highly recommend it. Uh, I've learned a lot about myself, about other people, and then obviously I'm, I'm you know, practicing using the arm method on my clients. So, it, I would say just, just, just do it. Just try it. I know. I mean, I'm not selling it that well, but uh, yeah, I, I would say it is really eye-opening and really one of the best healing modalities that I've come across.
2: Well, I guess when I hear myself talk, you know, which I don't get to do all the time, um, it can be a little cathartic, Uh you know, because I don't really get a chance to uh, wander through my mind like this out loud, so I appreciate the opportunity. Um, The other thing is that if somebody's thinking about this, It does take a couple of years to learn how to do this. You'll go through the first training model and five months, eight months, and then you'll want to have about a year and a half of maybe some supervised or coached experience using the model. And then you can come back for another round of it and, uh, you know, fine-tune what, you, you know, the, the weak points that you weren't able to master. Um, so, you know, when we talk about that kind of time investment, I'm 72 and I'm not going to be around forever. Um, so, you know, this is hopefully going to be looked at, this effort to get people trained as a happening that you could be on the ground floor of. So... I would like to invite people in and have them understand that we operate uh, sort of like um, a startup company that's trying to get the word out. (laughs) And we would love to have more participants. And in developing a model like this, I didn't have any peeps for a long time. And so I'm developing my own group, my own peeps at this point. And that's a very exciting thing. So um, there's a lot of soul or, or, you know, when you talk about psyche, you're talking about soul and depth. This is depth therapy. And there are very few places to learn depth therapy. So um, I, I hope you'll consider it if you're thinking about it at all. But
3: yeah, like you. And another thing, maybe to say is you know it is there's obviously a commitment, Mm -hmm. um, but also you know heal you you can heal alongside as you're learning the the, the modality as well. And I think any any good healer will say that they're never there's you know there's never anything like you're always on the path. You don't get to a point where you're like I'm good.
2: No, I told the um, interviewer yesterday that I've never really experienced the method, Uh, nobody's done it on me. Mm. And it's only because I won't let anybody. I don't really really believe that anybody has learned how to do it well enough where I'm not gonna be distracted. Um, Uh. But my family would attest to the fact without me asking anything that I have mellowed remarkably in the period of time that I've been practicing this. So one of the things that we do see in this model is it has reciprocal uh, value uh, for both the therapist and the client. There And energetically, when somebody lets go of the stick, sometimes I'll feel an energetic whoosh come through me. And that's usually the positive energy. I never get the same thing with the negative energy. And I think those are probably little gifts from the effort that have me integrating at the same time.
0: That sounds pretty powerful. I, I think of some folks that I know that do tremendous leadership and personal development coaching. And some of it can be really intense when you talk about operating with that level of empathy. And it seems like the, the larger groups, the more work they've done over time, just the stronger people they've become. And so you're almost in a sense, healing, you're receiving from giving. The more you give, the more patience, the more people you influence, the the higher the return. It's just a, a byproduct.
2: Yeah. I mean, the longer I go without getting the method, the less interested <laughs> I am in getting the method. So well, uh,
0: There might be a student, there's someone out there waiting for you that you're going to yeah. find and be like, all right, this is the one. Maybe, maybe sitting over here, who knows?
2: Uh, yeah. I, I mean, I wouldn't be opposed to it, but Uh, There are so many paradigm shifts in this model. It's just not possible for somebody to jump on board because they want to. Yeah. You know.
0: Well, hey, this has been a ton of fun. I appreciate you Uh, both coming by.
2: Well, thank you so much for being so patient with and generous. It's really been nice. Oh, this is yeah. fun!
0: I love it. You had so much to share and so much wisdom. And yeah, and I there's so much you. more.
3: He, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, I could just listen to him talk about it all day. And it's not like a super fun topic, but it's so interesting. Yes. And his, you know, it's funny because his office is like yours with all the books, so he's, <laughs> he's read all the things.
2: I love my office. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah.
3: it's amazing. Well, that's so, beautiful. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you both very much. Thanks. Thank
2: you.
1: See, this is the real secret of life, to be completely engaged with the here and now.
2: Everybody wants to fulfill the highest, truest expression of yourself. It was all a dream. Today is about the power of you. You've now entered the Derek Podcast.